morning, Horizon Church, and those watching online. So good to see y'all today. And uh, although Alex is not preaching today, a different Al is speaking. And um, I just want to say, Pastor Alex, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, usually, Pastor Alex would say, hey, do you mind speaking on this day or that day? But when he started doing this series on deconstruction, um, this series really, res- really resonated with me. And I was like, hey, Pastor Alex, would it be possible I can speak a week? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure, you know, and he's like really cool, like laid back, Pastor Alex kind of way. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak. I've loved this series. Um, I don't know about you, but it's brought a lot of healing to me, being able to talk about things in the church in a way that is with wisdom and intelligence and humility It's really, really humbling because I think sometimes when it comes to church, when it comes to church as a whole, as a greater system, there's almost like a dynamic where you just take it, but you don't question it. And I think sometimes when we get to that space where we can't have the freedom to question what we believe, I think that's where a lot of the problems can begin. You know, when you think about Jesus's ministry, it began with him questioning in the temple, not by answering questions, but by giving questions. And I think, I hope this series has meant a lot to you. It's meant a lot to me. And when Pastor Alex first started this series, um, he used a lot of Minecraft and a lot of elements of animation of deconstruction. And and, uh, it was really cool. My son really liked it. He loves Minecraft. But when I thought thought of deconstruction, I thought of like the Food Network. I love watching Chopped. And they always make like different variations of traditional food and they have to kind of make it creative and so this is a deconstruction a deconstructed version of peanut butter and jelly this is from chef terence brennan's peanut butter and jelly from a new york city restaurant called pichelin and so i think when it comes to things in the bible there's people that can look at it just like as a traditional peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You got your bread, you got your peanut butter, you got your jelly, and it's classic, and that combination is just awesome. But what if you can rethink that peanut butter and jelly without changing the elements, but maybe just rearranging how it looks and how how it's presented? And to me, that's what I think of when I think of deconstruction. You're not changing it, you're just reimagining it, rethinking it. And the term uh, deconstruction actually came from Jacques Diradata, a 1960s French philosopher, and goes on to say this what the definition of deconstruction is. Deconstruction is defined by as a way of analyzing literature that assumes that text cannot have a fixed meaning. An example of deconstruction is reading a novel twice, 20 years apart, and seeing how how it has a different meaning each time. A philosophical theory of textual criticism, a form of critical analysis. When we read things can really determine how we think about them. Um, And it's interesting, looking at Jacques Diradata, kind of looks like Lieutenant Columbo. I don't know about you, but there was an old show back in the like 70s, 80s, and 90s, and I like, I love Columbo. Columbo, like when I visit my parents, um, if we're not watching the Eagles game, we're throwing on a classic episode of Columbo. And I love Columbo because it always centers around his, like, famous quote. He's like, oh, I just, I just got to ask one more question, you know? And I just love it. And, and I think that's 
deconstruction in a nutshell. Can I ask one more question? And the interesting thing about Columbo, and the formula was tried and true every episode. You knew who did it, and here comes this buffoon of a detective who seems like a buffoon, but is actually really smart. And it's interesting when he starts interrogating the people, because people always get super defensive, and the person who usually gets super defensive is the one who's usually guilty, right? And, and, and you've seen it in every episode, and they just get uncomfortable with his questions and questions. And I always think this, the people that got uncomfortable with him asking questions, one, were either guilty or were protecting someone. And I think when it comes to asking spiritual questions, I think that can be said too. When you start asking spiritual questions, maybe you're touching on something that they're uncomfortable about, and maybe they're trying to protect something, or maybe protect someone. Oh, don't ask too many questions. What if people leave the church? Oh, don't ask too many questions. What happens if they really see our books? You know, and so you have this, this dynamic of questions allow us to process. And I think asking questions is a important thing to do. And we're going to break down why asking questions are so important from a disciple who was extremely misunderstood. He was actually labeled for his weakness, doubting Thomas. Of all the disciples, we don't call, it, it's Peter, it's Andrew, it's John. But whenever it comes to doubt Thomas, it's always, oh, that's doubting Thomas. But I want to reframe or deconstruct that stigma that Thomas may have as doubting Thomas and title this message, Daring Thomas. How doubting can strengthen your faith. Our faith is important to us. It's personal to us. And I think that's why when it comes to like deconstruction and asking questions, it can touch on some nerves and make us feel uncomfortable. And we can either step into that uncomfortability and have it strengthen our face, faith, or we can shy away and just always live in that tension of, well, I'm just going to do what I'm told, but is that the best way to believe? Because after Jesus rose from the dead, there was only one disciple that really touched Jesus. And it's amazing how through his faith, it really opened the doors for a lot of us to question and process. And he's, I think he set a great precedent. And as I share later today in this message, he's going to, uh, Thomas said something that was extremely theological that no other disciple said that is the foundation for how we believe and process what Jesus is as the Son of God and the Son of Man. But we'll get to that later. Let's take a look at this verse in John 20. Doubting with purpose will lead you to the truth. Doubting has to have a purpose. And I think when, we ha when doubting is, is coupled with purpose, it equals truth. John 20. On the, on the evening of that first day of the week, after Jesus was crucified, and the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. All right, so here's the resurrected Jesus coming and died for the disciples, died for us. And are they like having their doors open and having church and living out their faith the way Jesus wanted to, the way he died for them and, and empowered them to do so? No. What are they doing? They're hiding with their locked doors, blind shut, 
like how some Christians were in the 1980s when it was Halloween, right? They were like, no one's here, all right? No one is at this house. We don't want to get, you know, we don't want to get in trouble. Their teacher just died for them publicly, and now they're hiding privately. It's almost like they totally missed the whole mission of why he was there. But Jesus doesn't get mad. He just comes on through, and he's like, peace be with you. I love Jesus, you know? It's like sometimes we can get so reactionary, right? When someone something does something to us, we want to, like, do something to them back. And it's very Old Testament, eye for an eye. But Jesus comes in, he's like, peace be with you. Now, here's the interesting thing. Later on in this chapter, we realize that there was a disciple not there. Thomas, one of the twelve. Now, later on in verse 24 in John 20, Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with one of the disciples was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Already, you see Thomas has a different dynamic, a different understanding of who Jesus was and what he did. While all the other disciples were in hiding and in fear, Thomas was out in the open. I love that. I love that. You know, sometimes we can get like, in our Christian faith, we can get so like outspoken within these four walls, and you see people make big declarations and big gestures about how they believe and what they believe on a Sunday, but then they hide on a Monday. And here's Thomas being the same on a Sunday as he is on a Monday. That's a disciple that I want to hang out with. That's the type of disciple that I want to learn from. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with one of the disciples when Jesus came, i.e., he was not afraid. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. All right? Thomas was taking a scientific approach. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, need the, I got some questions. I need the answers. I, 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 need, I need to see this. I need to test it. I need to be able to, to, to have proof. I've got questions. And I want them answered. And when we think of this, we think of Thomas having a lack of faith. But I think his ability to ask questions was a sign of faith. I'm a teacher. And I love when students raise their hand. I love when students ask questions. And sometimes I have students, when they're learning something new, they will sit there. And if they can't hide and go to the bathroom or get a drink of water, right, because whenever they're learning something new, that's like the go-to, right? And it's usually like math. And we've got like snack right after math. So they've got plenty to drink during snack. But as soon as math start and there's a fraction, they're like, I need a drink. I need to go to the bathroom. They're stalling, right? They're trying to hide. They're trying to go into the room and lock the door. Or they will sit there in their seat and they'll just freeze. But when they freeze... I'm teaching, I'm going around, and I'll go to the other students who have their hands raised, but it takes me a while to see them sitting there. I can't help them if they don't raise their hand and ask the questions. I'll go to them, because I'm their teacher, and I know them, and I know what they're doing, but when you raise your hand, it allows the teacher to help. And I think when we raise our hand, we have spiritual questions, it allows our rabbi to help. So many of us sit with these unanswered questions, and it can form anxiety. It can cause us to freeze in our faith, 
or sometimes we just need to have the boldness to ask questions. Recently, there's been a lot of talk, debate about asking questions when it comes to churches. Um, There's a documentary that recently exposed a lot of the underpinnings of how toxic the culture and, and how just unethical and lack of integrity that Hillsong had over many decades, and it's on Discovery Plus, and it really dissects or deconstructs what this megachurch is all about, what megachurches are all about, and it's really insightful, and it's really hard to watch, but it's needed, and it's sad because we sang one of their songs this morning, and I love Hillsong. I went to their conferences. They were a big influence on me, but we can't just turn a blind eye because we have a personal connection. We had a feeling at a church and it gave us the warm fuzzies. We have to be able to hold these places accountable. There's also another podcast, The Rise and Fall of Another Megachurch in the Pacific Northwest about a, a leader that would just bully, abuse, volunteers, exploit staff. It was hard to listen to because on a small scale I experienced some of that while I was in ministry and it touched a lot of lives and it really raised awareness to say hey these aren't good practices when you when, when, when people are the product people will be abused and that's not the, the role of church and there's a movie that came out that dialogues and discusses or deconstructs Tammy Faye and Jim Baker of the 1980s and, and PTL. And this is Jessica Chastain, to, who's actually up for an Oscar for this movie for her portrayal. And the interesting thing is like, you see this dynamic of this system that wanted to just abuse people and take their money, and she was kind of caught in the middle where she really just loved people and just wanted to, to reach them where other people wanted to use them. And it really, this movie really displays that tension and it's amazing because even after PTL fell and it was exposed for exploiting people, like my parents, who gave thousands of dollars for some really cool, like, Christian, like, beach house or, like, lake house, where they took the money before they were even built, before they even, like, it, they just, ugh. Even today, when I think about the money that, like, my parents got took from that, it gets me upset. You know, but here's the thing. If that leads to questions... And questions leads to answers. And if the answers are accepted, then doubt has done good work. We have to be able to test what the structures of church are so that it can be a place where God can be glorified and people can be loved, where it will not be a place where people will be used and people will be abused. Because I think, and there's statistics to go along with this, the biggest reason that people are atheists today are not because they have a problem with God. It's because they have a problem with people misrepresenting God. And when you look at these movies, these documentaries, it's like, oh, how dare they talk about this mega church? How dare they talk about these churches and this ministry? Don't touch God's anointed. That was the verse that I heard all the time. Don't touch God's anointed. And it's actually found in 1 Corinthians 6, 16, 22. Don't touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. I cannot tell you how many times growing up in the faith when there were televangelists and pastors that I would go to or camps that I would go to that would just give me cringy vibes 
that as, as a youth person would just feel totally conflicted because I was being emotionally manipulated, and I would talk to other pastors, and I would talk to family, and they'd be like, oh, don't touch God's anointed. You can't criticize them. You know this verse has nothing to do with 20, 20th century pastors and 21st century televangelists. It has nothing to do with that. This verse has nothing to do with pastors today. Zero. What this verse actually has to deal with is with Old Testament. When you read the whole verse, it gives you a whole new context for what this, what this verse meant. It's not about not being able to criticize what's going on in church today. It's about how Israel is going to the promised land, and God's not going to let that be dismayed, or he's not going to let that be derailed. No one's going to touch his anointed ones from getting to the promised land. 1 Corinthians 16, 15, 22, the whole story. He remembers his covenant forever, the promises he made for a thousand generations. The covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as a portion that you will inherit. When they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them for their sake. He rebuked kings, do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. This had everything to do with Israel going from a place of wandering to a place they called home in the promised land. That is what that verse refers to. That is what that, that term means. Don't touch my anointed ones. Has nothing to do with pastors and preachers and prophets today. Zero. Zero. And here's the, another interesting thing. We're all God's anointed. It's not just for a few. It's not just for like the ones in, 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 in positions of leadership or the ones that have a title. 2 Corinthians one twenty one says this, now he, is, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us in God, who has also sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We're all anointed. We're all in this together. There's no spiritual levels of this person's more spiritual than me, so I can't question them. All right? There's no ranking system in the kingdom of God. Amen to that. And how many times have I seen where it's like, you can't question the ones up here because you're lowly and you're down here. Oh, it's different being a full-time ministry. You don't know what it's like. The enemy attacks. Let me tell you something. The world's broken all over the place. Listen, I've been in ministry. It's hard. But you know what? I've talked to some teachers. It's hard there, too. I've talked to some restaurant owners. It's hard there, too. You know, when everything was going on with COVID, they were like, oh, look, look, they're, they're oppressing churches. How many restaurants aren't there today because of what happened with COVID? A lot. A lot. A lot. A lot. We live in a fallen world. And it's time that we really need to come together and focus on Jesus and be willing to look at ourselves honestly to create safe places for people who are hurting and broken to come and not feel shy to come to church because the last time they went to church, they got used and abused and judged and it was a horrible experience. This needs to be the safest place on earth. This needs to be a place where you can come in and you feel loved, that there's a seat for you, 
that you aren't feeling judged. When I was a, when I was a church planner, I had people tell me, we like you. We like your wife. We like what you're doing in the community. But the last time I was at your church, there was people there that were judging me, and I knew it, and I felt it, and they were saying things about me. So I'm not going to come back. And I'm like, crap! Like, that is not what I want! And you know what, what, what's interesting is, as our church plant grew, and it became what I thought was, like, successful, and, and we reached 100 people, and it was, like, this big milestone, and, and um, you know, completely in it at times for the wrong reasons. It's like, oh, it's completely in it to, like, prove something to leadership that said, you have to have this to be successful. You have to have this number to be relevant. You have to have this building and this thing and da-da-da-da-da. So I thought, all right, for me to be successful, for me to have worthiness, I need to hit these milestones. Totally ungodly, let me just say that. Totally ungodly, all right? Because Jesus consistently shows us that numbers and mass and size are irrelevant in the kingdom of God. But in the kingdom of earthly church, it matters a big deal. You get conferences, you get speaking opportunities, you get more funding. There's zero metrics or accountability for teachers that are healthy. Hey, you've really come through a really tough time. Wow, you've really led your church with integrity and and, and truth. We're going to bless you, even though you've got one of the smallest churches in our network. Hey, you've done things with the most integrity. Where's that ever been? (laughs) You know, when I go to conferences, it's like, oh, here's this church planner who's got like thousands of people. Hey, how about the one pastor who's like consistent every day and shows up and does the right thing but maybe has less people? Is that person not as worthy as the other people that we love to help to promote? We love to promote the successful. We love to idolize the celebrities. But I think Jesus is more concerned about is your heart, not the amount of what's in your wallet or the amount of people that's in your church. We're all anointed. There are no levels in the kingdom of God. And I love this verse from Josh 20, where, where John 20, where we get to see Jesus and Thomas have this interaction. Churches do not pastor the doubting, but Jesus did. Let me just say this real quick before we get into this verse. This is the first time I've ever been in a church where we've actually talked and had a series about questions, about processing your faith. I've been in tons of churches before. It's all about having more faith, more faith, more belief, more, more, more. This is the first time I've had a, a church where we talked about, hey, it's okay if you don't have more. It's okay if you're in a place where you feel, from a world standard, there's less. But maybe from a kingdom's perspective, there's more. All right, soapbox off. <clears throat> John 20, nine, uh, 24 and 25 goes on to say this. A, f- a week later, his disciples were in the house again, <laughs> and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. I love that John puts this in here. It's like, Jesus showed up the first time. Yeah, they're still nervous. They, they still have their doubts. I love that. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came through and among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord, my God. I love this. I love this verse because here is Thomas questioning, doubting, right? And what's the first thing Jesus does? 
he approaches him and says, here, touch me. See that I'm real. It was worth it. Everything you went through, everything you experienced, it was worth it, and I am real. He didn't judge him and say, you know, Thomas, all your friends were able to believe without seeing me. Why didn't you have that faith too? You know, Thomas, you know, yada, yada, yada. But he didn't. He didn't say any of that. In fact, he didn't even wait for Thomas to say anything. He went right to him because he knew exactly where he was hurting. I love that about Jesus. He knows where we need him most. He knows the areas of our life that sometimes are off the grid, that he knows exactly where to go. Put your fingers here. I mean, what an intimate, like, this is a super intimate moment for Jesus and Thomas, for him to touch him, to touch his wounds. You know, think about it. Sometimes the scars in our lives, they're the most sensitive areas. The past hurts, the lies, the accusations, they leave scars too. And it's hard to be open and allow others to touch that area of our lives. And here's Jesus in his most vulnerable moment, naked on a cross. He's like, Thomas, you can touch my scars. I trust you. And it's amazing because what Thomas says next, my Lord, my God, is the most profound theological statement in the New Testament. This, this verse, my Lord, my God, is the first time anyone in Scripture was able to recognize Jesus as fully God and fully man. Here's this person who had all these questions, all these doubts, and Jesus didn't shame him. Jesus didn't say, just have more faith. Through his questions, through his doubts, he was able to have the most profound statement of who Jesus was. He knew Jesus better than any of the disciples because he was willing to ask the tough questions. And my hope and my prayer as a church is that we can continue to ask the tough questions questions, because that is what strengthens our faith. Just saying, just be positive. Just have more faith. Just pray a little bit harder. They're great cliches, but they do nothing when you're struggling. They don't. We got to be able to test. We got to be able to pick and prod and question. And I love this verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. It's okay to question things in church. It's okay to question spiritual leaders. It's okay to have documentaries that exposes the ugly parts of church and Christian culture, not to exploit it, but to help us be better because we as an American church, we need to do better. We failed during COVID-19. We missed a, a huge opportunity to reach out to the broken and the hurting and there's way too many churches, pa- churches and pastors that were concerned about their numbers and being opened when for years people say, church isn't a building. It's not what happens on Sunday. And then COVID happens, and all of a sudden, it's about a building. It's about what happens on Sunday. You know? What happens if churches would have been like, you know, it's cool. We're bigger than Sunday. What happens here is, 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 more, is more important than, like, it's not about Sunday. What if the churches really lived it and believed it? How different would the American landscape be today? How many people who are hurting would now find hope? 
when, when masks were a thing. And it was like this opportunity where, hey, we can be thinking of our neighbor. Whether you believe in all the science or not, hey, this is what's culturally happening right now. Whether you believe the science or not, I'm going to do this because I love my neighbor. And if this is an act of loving my neighbor, then I'm going to do it despite my own personal or political beliefs. Isn't that what Christians are supposed to do? <laughs> Put our own beliefs and, and, and our own preferences aside and say, hey, if this helps, helps me love my neighbor better, I'm going to do that. But we didn't. A lot of, some did, but there was a lot that didn't. Arguing of a, over a mask that honestly, in the coming weeks, in the coming months or years, aren't, is not even going to be a thing anymore, hopefully, right? And now we're arguing and fighting over something, a piece of fabric. Church, got to do better. Now, I love this. Acts 17, 10 and 11 says this. Now, the Berean Jews, now, let's talk about the positive side. Now, you're like, oh, Pastor, you're just bitter because, like, you, like, had rough, like, ministry experience and all this kind of stuff. You, you, just, you just don't like Christians or churches. No, I do. And I think there's a better way of doing things, like the Berean Jews. Now, the Berean Jews were one of the more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. Yo, we need some Berean Christians today where we won't just blindly accept what's happening, but hey, can we test and approve? Can we search to see if what they're saying is really true? For 1995, if I pay you to give me this prayer napkin, will like, my life get spiritually better, all right? Where is that in the Bible, <laughs> right? Like, we need to be able to test and approve. We need this, this mindset to be like the Bereans, to test what's really true. Is what's being preached on Sunday what's really being said in my Bible on Monday? We need to have that dynamic. And look, this is what happened. Because of their being able to test, because of their more open-mindedness, I love the next part of this verse. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. Because of this group of believers that were willing to test, willing to put a little extra work, instead of just being like, well, I'm just going to do what I'm told, different cultures came to know Jesus. Jews, Greeks, men, women, social classes, prominent. That's like the educated. And a lot of times the stigma for, for Christianity is, oh, that's just for like, you know, it's just a spiritual crutch. Christians aren't really intelligent. We need to be in, known for being intelligent too. I love what the, the prophet Isaiah says. He says, come let us reason together. We need to be able to reason as, as Christians. We need to be able to have good books, like financial books. We need to do things with integrity. You know, it's interesting. Growing up in church and being a pastor, I would hear this all the time. A good leader is a good follower. And I heard that so many times. That is not what makes a good leader, is being a good follower. You know who are good followers? Nazis. They were good followers. You know what they said when they were arrested? after World War II, what every German officer, Nazi officer said was, we were just doing what we were told. Being a good follower is not a good leader. You know what's a good, you know what makes a good leader? Integrity, honesty, empathy. That's what makes a good leader. That's someone who I want to follow. And you know, um, one of my, speaking of it, uh, integrity and 
honesty and character. One of my favorite pastors is Mark Batterson. Pastor Alex, he likes him too. We're inspired by the same guy. And Alex, Pastor, I should kind of talk like him too. You guys kind of have like a lot of the same mannerisms. Um, it's interesting. Uh, he's a pastor that, is a, that uh, has a church in Washington, D.C. Church planner, started in a school. And in his story, he would see this crack house up on the top right. It was a crack house in D.C., and no one wanted that building. And he walked around it and would pray for it, and for years be like, I feel like God wants us to have this building. I want to do everything we can to get in that building. I, see, I don't see a crack house. I see a coffee house. And so they scrimped and saved, and they were able to get an amazing deal on that building for like $300,000, which is like unheard of in D.C. because this property was actually valued for $2 million dollars. But they actually got into the building and they renovated it to a coffee house, which came to $3 million. And so here's this church. They raised the money. They were able to get this building, but they're still paying on this, this $3 million loan. And Mark at this time had a meeting with this couple. And I want to share a passage from the book where he talks about this meeting that was a pivotal meeting in, in them owning this coffee house and having the capital to have other co coffee houses in the New York, in the Washington, D.C. area. So this is from his book, the, um, from his book, Circle Maker. This couple wants to meet with him. We sat in my office above Evan Hughes' coffee house. They prepped with, they peppered me with questions about my bylaws, financial checks and balances, decision-making protocols, and while I felt a little defensive at the time, right, because who's this couple coming to me saying, I want to see your books. I want to see how you do things. I want to see if you guys are, like, above board. We're testing everything, right? Like investors who research a company before purchasing stock, they wanted to make sure it would be a good return on investment. After answering nearly 90 minutes worth of questions, they ended by asking about our vision. So if I'm him, I'm be like, what, what is going on here? Why are they peppering me all, all, all these questions? Well, later on in the chapter, they said this. After, after this long meeting, Pastor Mark, we wanted to follow up with our meeting and let you know that we want to give a gift to National Community Church. The largest single gift we ever had received at that point was $42,000. Well, this gift was well beyond that. Um, they said, we want to give the church three million dollars. So here's this church that scrimped, saved, raised money just to buy that building. They were able to renovate it, but they still owed three million dollars, right? And the really cool thing about this coffee house, to all the profits, go to missions. Awesome. And so through his ability to be honest, have character, have integrity, here's this couple that met with him tested on all his practices and was like, this guy's legit. His church is legit. We're going to write him a $3 million check so that he owns this building, that church owns this building, free and clear. That is massive. As a church planner, to have a $3 million building completely paid off, huge. But why did it happen? Yeah, he had great faith. Yeah, he would walk around that, build, that, that, that area and pray over it. All, like so many times, but he also had integrity. Christians, let me tell you, we can't just be like 
all about blind faith and our words. We have to have our character and our integrity back it up as well. That is how we can have what happens in, in with the Berean churches, with the Berean Jews, with cultures coming together, old, young, wealthy, wherever social status you are, it makes a difference. And we as a Christian church in America need to have that mindset. People test everything, have integrity, have empathy. And as a close, I just want to go through this deconstruction list. When I think about Jesus and how different he was and how important he is, whenever I struggle with faith, whenever I struggle with Christians, even myself, poor decisions, I, you know, as a, as a church planner, I was not great. I didn't make all the best decisions. I screwed up many times. I've had Christian friends. I've had friends let me down. But I still love Jesus, and it's Jesus that still brings me back every time I have questions. When rabbis wanted the best, Jesus chose the one who doubted. When rabbis avoided the unclean, Jesus touched the leper. When rabbis had all the answers, Jesus asked the right questions. When rabbis loved others like themselves, Jesus said, love your enemy. When rabbis used the temple as a business, Jesus called it a house house of prayer. When rabbis wanted to degrade a woman, Jesus gave her dignity. When rabbis arrested Jesus in private, but Jesus died for you in public. This is why I believe. This is why I'm still a Christian. Yes, there will be hurts, and yes, people will let us down, and yes, the church as a whole in America needs to do better, and I think it will get better. And I'm grateful for Pastor Alex and Darby where I could come to church on a Sunday and not leave with anxiety. It's a beautiful thing. It's a great thing. It's a great thing when your son is struggling with his faith and I see him like on this fence of like not knowing if he believes or what he believes. And then like, and there's times when, because I'm his teacher, when we'd have these Bible classes, and I would, you know, we talk about, like, your journey and all these kind of things, and I have these questions that the students would ask, and sometimes they'd be like, well, I'm still processing, or I'm not yet there yet. It was really cool for Keen to write on this handout this week that his faith is growing, where before he didn't have any, and I think a lot of that is you and your influence. You know, those times where, you're like, you're playing Minecraft <laughs> with a 12-year-old, it's like, as a pastor, like, what a waste of time, right? Shouldn't you be, like, writing books and being at conferences and going to this kind of thing? Yeah, but those times of playing Minecraft with a 10-year-old took one child who struggled and didn't believe to now coming to a place where they're growing and starting to believe. That's why I love this church. That's what gives me hope to believe today. And my hope is that as we construct our faith, we can continue to ask questions, and those questions can strengthen our faith.